namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sangkhang namasami As always, it's good to see you all here this evening. I share what Ajananda Bodhi said last week when she was talking about her years before she was a nun and she used to come and stay out here and and often she was the only guest staying in the, in the cottage there and she used to wonder how come you know more people don't come and stay and I, I have the same feeling, I... You know, sitting together on an evening like this in silence seems to me to be, you know, one of the most useful and agreeable things that you could really be doing. And I do sometimes wonder how come the Dhamma Hall is not packed with people. Anyway, I'm pleased that you're here and uh, that we we do have this opportunity to meet and uh, that we do have this shared appreciation of the place of silence. as a ritual practice, getting together and just being silent together physically, stopping talking and just to be together in silence is a good thing, a wonderful thing. And then, of course, behind that is the encouragement that we find the inner silence. And, And if we have the opportunity to sit together and find that place and be together. I'm sure we all benefit from that. I think there's something about group practice that's very worthwhile. And, and to, uh, to pay attention to that, to pay attention how, how it feels to be together in silence. And the effect it has on us when we pay attention to silence or inner tranquility. And conversely, the effect it has on us when we pay attention to confusion, when our attention lands on things that are super stimulating. And I think Ajahnabhinanda mentioned this morning how that people on the average spend 12 years of their life watching television. Uh, I'm not sure whether this is all people. I don't suppose it applies to everybody everywhere, but perhaps in the developed Western world this is the average these days that 12 years paying attention to television and back in the 60s I used to be a macrobiotic uh, fanatic and, and used to love reading George Oshawa and, and one of his maxims was you are what you eat and this was our thing you know, to, to be very careful about what you eat because it defines your being well I don't altogether accept that uh, these days but uh, my own feeling about it is we are what we pay attention to. What we, what we allow our attention to settle on, what we hold with our attention, defines us. And, and so paying attention, noticing what it's like when we spend time together paying attention to silence. Yeah. What effect does that have on us? So what gets nourished in us? What gets strengthened? 
what gets enabled and as I was saying conversely when we pay attention to uh, television you watch a lot of television or if you watch any television what happens, what's the effect I find if I if, I, if I'm on the computer late at night, which I try not to be, but sometimes I am, that uh, the effect it has on me is not good. And I read a report, or I heard a, no, I heard a report on a study that was done on children. Uh, they, they wire these kids' brains up and then get them to watch television. And what happens, apparently, is that the, the frontal lobes get switched off, just turn them off. And uh, so the calculation they did was that if children watch more than an hour a day of television, it seriously impedes the development of the brain. And uh, this was being put forward as an explanation for some of the uh, difficulties that uh, young people are having to deal with these days. And uh, I think, uh, the, well, the same thing with uh, when we watch the computer. You know, what is the effect it has on us? What's the effect if we don't notice these things, well, then technology um, drives us. There's something about the computer screen, there's something about television that just holds you there. And I don't know enough about it to know what it is, but if we're not mindful of what happens according to where we place our attention, then our attention basically becomes seduced by technology very easily. And I don't just think this is a, a bloke's thing. A lot of blokes do like gadgets, but there's something about technology that if we're not mindful of it, it can control our lives. Now, technology can be uh, wonderful and can be very useful. I'm very happy to have Kath back with us this evening and after four weeks away dealing with the, uh, the trauma of, of her son's accident. And Kath's been saying, telling us what the amazing things that uh, medical technology can do that's saved her son's life, and that's wonderful. But uh, you know, if you, um, there's also other examples. I was reading in the, the Guardian of, I think it was Karen Armstrong, makes a, a, an article from time to time in the Guardian, and she was talking about what happened to her mother when she was dying and the, uh, the use of technology in those circumstances. It's a terrible dilemma. We have all the sophisticated equipment. This person's dying, and technology can actually create more suffering. And, of course, the, uh, all the, uh, the military technology creates a lot of suffering, no doubt about that. However, if we do pay attention, if we're careful, if we're mindful of our relationship with technology, and we, we see what happens when we place our attention on these things, the effect that it has on us, then, then there's less chance we're going to be manipulated by it. Mm. There's a lot that goes on, a lot of opportunities we have to distract ourselves, or we can also make the choice to do this, to sit together in silence and... and there is a, sometimes a, a need to distract ourselves. If we don't have a well-developed mindfulness, if our mindfulness is not here and now, judgment-free, body-mind mindfulness, if it's not well-balanced, well-trained mindfulness, well then we can also make a, a problem out of paying attention to silence. We can 
say, oh, I, shouldn't, I should never watch television. I should never watch movies. You know, I should always meditate. And I remember when uh, my mother and father came to visit me uh, from New Zealand, the other side of the planet, as far away as you can get from England. And it was quite a big deal for them to get here. And they were getting on in years. And so the, the journey in itself was quite a big deal. And then coming to see their son as a Buddhist monk in a monastery for the first time, that was a big deal. And uh, what happened, uh, they were staying with good friends of mine in London, and my father promptly had a brain hemorrhage, a serious uh, one. And fortunately, the, the wife of my friend there was a doctor and recognized it and got him straight into the Royal Free Hospital. And where, at the time, they, they had some of the world's best um, equipment for dealing with these things. But there was my dad lying in bed, dressed in white, with his head shaved, just like an anagarika. And uh, I used to go on arms round at Hampstead and take my arms food and share with him. But uh, I wasn't having a very good time. My mother wasn't having a very good time. You know, this, was, uh, this, was, this was a serious upset. And, and I wasn't used to staying in London and my parents being dependent upon me. I was used to depending on my parents. Anyway, I wasn't... I wasn't very good at meditating under those circumstances. I found it very difficult to make the mind quiet. And uh, what I did in that, in that situation was I turned to chanting. And I'm very pleased that I'd memorized the Dhamma Chakrabhuatana Sutta, and it's a very nice long chant, and it's very repetitive, and you can go over and over it. And the reason I'm telling you this story is because you know, we do need to be able to, to be agile in how we place attention. If we accept the principle that, that we are what we put our attention on, we are what we attend to, what we let our minds dwell on, that we need to also be careful of how we dwell. You know, we can get fixated. We can, we can think that just being peaceful all the time is it, and I should be able to meditate and make my mind peaceful. Actually, sometimes it's good just to read a novel or even watch a movie. Yeah. I'm not sure about the royal family, but... <laughs> It's a, <laughs> it's a <laughs> an acquired taste that uh, Kath was telling me about. It's, um, but there, are, yeah, there's a lot of uh, a lot of good movies out there. Sometimes that's the thing to do: watch a movie, read a book, or go swimming, or go jogging. Again, many times people come to me with their meditation problems, and or ring me up with their meditation problems, and I say, what you need to do is, you know, go jogging, or go swimming, or even go dancing. And people don't usually like that when I recommend they go dancing. They think, you know, I'm being irresponsible. I think I'm joking. But I, I'm not really. Some, for some people, that's the thing to do. I don't go, I mean taking ecstasy and, you know, that's going too far. But uh, just dancing without the ecstasy, sometimes a good idea to get physical, to come back in the body. Sometimes paying attention to the mind, you know, trying to be peaceful. Okay, being peaceful is a good idea. The Buddha encouraged it. But... Again, if our attention is, if we're not agile in how we place attention, then we can get fixated. We can get fixated on being good, you know, being moral. The Buddha praised morality big time. Uh, and yet, again, if our attention is not agile, then we can be too concerned about it. We can be trying too hard and... and you know, worrying a lot about our purity and getting attached to ideas of purity. 
rather than using the moral precepts as is intended to help us become more aware of our intention and then little by little to increase our morality. So how do we, uh, how do we develop this agility? How, do we, how can we exercise the discipline of attention, which is a responsible thing to do, but how can we do it in a way that is, that is agile and, and appropriate for practice? And well, this, this always, as far as I'm concerned, this always brings me back to this here and now, judgment-free, body-mind awareness. You know, these three points, I think, are, are really invaluable. We, we can't afford to forget them. If we forget here and now, well, then we can get lost in the past or lost in the future. Yeah. Whereas if we train ourselves here and now, here and now, this place, this time, this moment is always new. And there's a certain aliveness and vitality if we bring ourselves to this place, this time. And it encourages agility. Whereas memories, I mean, memories, God, some memories that I have, I could, yeah, I just spend ages, hours and hours just dwelling on some old memory, the same old boring, ugly, stinky memory. Just drag it up and dwell on it and get fixed on it. And there's producing all sorts of negative feelings or or future, you know, things that are going to happen in the future. The oil's going to run out. You know, this terrible peak oil crisis that's coming or all the other terrible things that are going to happen in the future. You can, yeah, these things might happen and it's appropriate to think about them, but if we don't have our attention trained here and now, then we end up giving too much value to the ideas of the future and get fixated on them, get lost in them. Judgment-free. Even if our mind is here and now, the content of here and now, if we're still compulsively judging the content of our mind, the things that come up is that if we focus our attention, the mind brightens and intensifies and the whole body-mind can become a very, not a very comfortable experience. And if we haven't prepared ourselves with judgment-free awareness, this aspect, then even though we're making the right effort to be here and now, we're caught up in compulsively judging, saying, I shouldn't be this way. After all these years of practice, I should be better. Well, they shouldn't be this way. And it's true, a lot of the time they shouldn't be that way. A lot of the time I shouldn't be this way. However, if, if our assessment of our assessment of the situation is impassioned, with wild energy, then that's not, that's not just a wise assessment or a, a skillful discernment. That's a compulsive judgment. And, and that also uh, blocks us, locks us. We get caught, we get stuck, and we feel stuck. And that compromises agility. Whereas if it's judgment-free, I mean, those of you that have, you know, have, have worked with this and realize what it's like to free your mind from compulsive judging tendencies, how fast awareness can become. What a huge difference. What a huge difference it makes when you're allowed to be a complete failure, for instance. When you know, when you catch yourself having failed again, no judgment. (sighs) Great. It's okay. It's really okay to fail again. Over and over and over and over again, we can fail. When it's here and now, 
and judgment-free, that's all right. We just learn from that. We learn. We see the tendency to grasp. In that moment, we see it. We see we're doing the grasping. And we see we don't have to do the grasping. That's the good news. We don't just see that we're doing the grasping and we're creating the suffering. We see that we don't have to do the grasping. Here and now, judgment-free body-mind. So we might be here and now, might be judgment-free, but again, if it's not embodied, we can have a problem. We cannot be really learning the lessons, the basic lessons, because the body in particular, a lot of us, because of the way we're conditioned, our education, our programming, the wonderful power we have, our minds are amazingly powerful things, and, and the bodies are so coarse and difficult and... The older we get, the more unpleasant they are. That's, yeah. uh, or even when you're young, the the subtlety of mind states are so so thoroughly attractive compared to the coarseness of the body that uh, it's easy to not pay attention to it. But the body is part of this being, and it's part of what we are actually called to take responsibility for. And if we're not careful, we can uh, we can make this split that probably most of us all know about. Is, uh, we split off from the body and we, we're basically not feeling what we're feeling. The mind is very, very tricky. It's, it's not difficult to deal with some of the superficial defilements or kilesas, as they're called in the tradition. You know, some of the surface conditioning. It's not maybe not so difficult to deal with some of these things. But the underlying ten- tendencies, the asavas, it's difficult to even see them in the mind, let alone to really feel the consequences of them. You know, they, they, they we're driven by these things. and You can notice this, how you, you get into a little tranquility and the mind becomes peaceful and you think you're all just full of love and light and everything's amazing and wonderful and you know, the monastery's wonderful and even Northumberland weather is wonderful and the Ajahn's wonderful and everything's wonderful until you come out of your meditation and it's not very long before the whole thing stinks. And the weather, the building, the monastery, and the ajahn. Yeah. Or you think you've overcome compulsive desires and until suddenly kapow, something comes up and the mind gets all stirred up with passion again. And Well, these underlying tendencies are not so easy to see. And often, it's if, we're, if, it's, if we're really in the body, it's the body that tells us. Yeah. The tension, the stress, the, the uh, discomfort in the body, if we pay attention to it, uh, if we're agile enough in our attention, then we can uh, learn. We can, it's like a it's like a key. It gives us it gives us a way in to some of these uh, deeper held uh, tendencies of mind. So here and now, judgment free body mind awareness. If we train ourselves in this, well, this is an excellent training. This is we can do it anywhere, anytime. Formal meditation, daily life. It's an excellent training for developing agility. We can accord with the situations that we find ourselves in. Whether it's appropriate to talk or whether it's appropriate to not talk. It's not me, ego me, conditioned split off ego me that thinks he's running things that makes the decision. It's the whole body mind that makes the decision. If we're not agile enough with our attention, then we get caught in these contracted fixed positions which are the symptom of ego. Of uh, attachment to personality, to meanness. You know, we feel so responsible for getting it right and, and getting it wrong and 
and then we try and manipulate ourselves in the situation so we don't get it wrong again in the future, we get it right and because we're going to get rewarded and so on and so forth. Whereas if we let go of all that and cultivate here and now, judgment-free, body-mind awareness, then it's the Dhamma, it's reality that teaches us. It's reality that makes the decisions. So this agility of attention is really important. However, by developing agility, that doesn't mean to say that that uh, we just go with the flow all the time. I mean, there is that, that uh, also that um, view, uh, or sometimes that inclination um, to think that, well, we just go with what's happening. And I'm enormously grateful for that wonderful, brief and memorable teaching by Master Shunhua. He says, accord with conditions without compromising principles. I think that's such a wonderful way of, of defining practice. If our practice is right practice, balanced practice, then we have this ability that is able to accord with conditions, to be agile, but without compromising principles. Now, being too agile and not really established in right principles, well, we can easily compromise them. You know, say, oh, we'll just go with the flow and we'll tell a few lies here and nick a few things there and <laughs> whatever, you know, get a little, you know, have a little more sleep and, you know, we, oh, I don't want to meditate today, well, I want to just go with the flow and don't want to force myself, you know, force myself to meditate, it's not, you know, just go with the flow and, and uh, that person, well, you know, I really hate that person, I just, just tell them about it and just thump them, you know, <laughs> go with the flow and, uh, well, <laughs> of course I'm exaggerating, that's, uh, but you get the effect that, it's not just agility of attention, it's not just go with the flow, but that it needs to also be this uh, appreciation, and this is the Buddhist teaching, there does need to be an education and appreciation in true principles. And this is why I, uh, personally, one of the reasons why I I feel it's really important to study uh, the teachings of the Buddha. There are some people who think, oh, you don't need to study, you just meditate. Well, that's okay, but, you know, up to a point. But Ajahn Chah used to give the example. He said it's like, it's like a medical practitioner. Yeah. Yeah. First they study the texts, and then they practice. A medical practitioner that's never studied the texts, you know, you probably wouldn't want to subject yourself to their diagnosis, at least not an operation by one of them. I certainly wouldn't want an acupuncturist to start sticking pins in me if he hadn't, you know, done some serious study. But then, on the other hand, if all the acupuncturist or the medical practitioner has done is study books, well, that's not much good either because you can study something, but when it comes to actually, you know, sticking the pins in, you know, I've, been, I've had an acupuncturist stick pins in me, and I don't think they've done it very often before. It was very painful. Whereas a good acupuncturist is just, you know, you hardly feel it. I mean, once they've got it in there, give it a little wiggle where you feel it. <laughs> that's something else. But sticking the pins in is very different. When you've read the book... You know, you rule the meridians and you know this, that and the other thing and all the, the elements and balancing these energies and so on and so forth. But when it comes to actually having some flesh and a pin and sticking it in, I know when I was training it, at one stage I was training in, in medical technique and, and we were given an orange to practice on. And, you, you know, you've got a syringe with a needle and you, you stick it into the orange. And so, well, that's, you know, that's different from reading it in a book. 
But then when you've got somebody's butt and you've got to stick it in their butt, that's it. <laughs> that's different again. I remember the first time I did something, an upper outer quadrant, boing, 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 <laughs> it bounced off this poor guy's I felt really, really sorry for him. <laughs> well, you know, the actual hands-on bit is, is very different from the theory. And so you know, Ajahn Chah used to emphasize, they were the theory of practice and the actual practice. They go together. And I think in the Buddhist teachings, this is, this, is, this is the basic principle that we do need to study. What, what are true principles? What is Dhamma? What accords with Dhamma? What doesn't accord with Dhamma? Yeah. Meditation is good. Yes, it's good for exercising you know, training discipline, the discipline of attention. But there are also true principles that we need to educate ourselves and just to get aware of the potential of our human being and, uh, and how we can go off. And, of course, there are many frameworks, different ways of talking about this, but I think one of the basic and, and most useful ways is the, you know, the teachings we have in Theravadan tradition of the uh, ten paramitas. And uh, this, whatever's going on in practice, you, you feel you're stuck in something or you don't know what to do or you're in a crisis and you don't know what to do or practice is not happening or you don't know the next step to take, we can always come back to the ten paramitas, these, these ten perfections, as they're called. See? And which one of these is asking to be developed? So if we familiarize ourselves with them, there's dana, generosity, sila, uh, integrity, nekama, uh, renunciation, aditana, determination, panya, wisdom, virya, energy, satcha, honesty, kanti, patience, Metta, loving-kindness, and upeka, equanimity. These ten paramitas. And, and these are ten principles, dhamma principles, which we can familiarize ourselves with. And we can go over them, forwards, backwards, and just contemplate them. And these virtues... Now, I found something in my own mind in the beginning of practice. I was very hesitant to... Uh, pay attention to these things. I was of the school that thought, well, you just meditate. And that's probably mainly because when I started meditating, I had some good experiences. I used to get quite a lot of bliss, and, and uh, I got addicted to that. I just think, give me more of that. And it was basically just another way of getting a sense rush, really. I didn't want to bother with all these virtues. I had um, somehow the idea of, well, maybe a little experience of, of sometimes, you know, virtues can... They can stink, you know. If you uh, there's something about virtues, they're like flowers. You know, flowers. If you don't change the water, they stink. I mean, rotten flowers really stink bad. As beautiful and gorgeous as flowers can be, when they go rotten, because sometimes I know sitting here, sometimes the water in these flowers up here doesn't get changed. And my meditation, I just, Phew. but it's good for equanimity. And I, you know, I always think, well, Arjuna Bhinando will notice these flowers need to be changed, or maybe he's got somebody else on the job. <laughs> you know. Well, virtues are the same. You know, uh, Virtues can stink, and uh, I guess I must have had a little experience of that in my early life and about morality. You know, Morality is you know, such a dirty word these days. Uh, patience and these things. Uh, nobody ever talks about renunciation or, or determination. I mean, when was the last, the last time we heard anybody talk about determination being a virtue or renunciation and well traditional Buddhist culture these are the things we're supposed to pay attention to dana, sila, nikama 
Aditana, Panya, Virya, Sacha, Kanti, Metta, Upekha. These are the these are things we're supposed to be dwelling on. Because we dwell on them, well then these things get nourished. But as I was saying, we can dwell on them also in a way whereby they, 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 they go off. And uh, in my case, that was a disincentive. But that doesn't mean to say we shouldn't dwell on them. You know, the, the Buddha taught about these things. You know, he, he spoke about his past lives when he'd spent a whole life developing one of these paramitas. They're spending a whole lifetime developing a particular paramitta. And, uh, and so whatever situation we're in, we can, we can develop these things like I find uh, sometimes I've talked about this before when I'm traveling on an airplane I usually I usually in fact almost always travel um, cattle class you know in the, the back seats there where and I got my knees up around my ears because it's uh, I got big long legs and and it's really uncomfortable really uncomfortable and as the years go by it gets more uncomfortable and you know I really don't like it there's no question about it I, I, I don't usually manage to sleep on aeroplanes very well at all, if at all. And uh, I find them pretty disagreeable situation all around. And if it's going to New Zealand, well, that's, that's a long haul to get to New Zealand. And so I find I, uh, I'm not usually in a good state after a few hours of sitting there. But uh, eventually, I, after doing this for a few hours, I realized, well, this is an ideal situation of developing patience. You know, every every spiritual teacher that's worth his weight has encouraged patience. Now, is it possible to develop patience when you're having a good time? No, it's not, is it? If you're having a good time, you don't have to be patient. You can't be patient when you're having a good time. And yet, the Buddha and everybody else praises patience. So, guess what? Stuck in an aeroplane for hours is absolutely the very, very best, right, appropriate situation to develop patience. Now, that's a good thing to realize because then it comes with that, this tremendous willingness to develop patience. Patience, patient endurance, not bitter endurance. That's very different. Bitter endurance is that where you're gritting your teeth and you really deeply resent it and you wish you didn't have to do it and you think you shouldn't have to do it, but you're only going to do it because the consequences of not doing it is, is, is more painful. Patient endurance is something else. It's not bitter endurance. Patient endurance is where we realize, we trust with faith in the Buddha's teaching that this is a transformative power. That the strength, patient endurance is a form of strength. And and the same with sila. Sometimes we we only keep morality because the consequences of getting caught by the cops or or whoever else is, is too, too awful, so we manage to behave ourselves. But that's a fairly initial level of, of keeping sila. When we also understand that keeping sila by practicing restraint, moral restraint, that is inhibiting the tendency to act on any impulse to cause suffering for a living being, cultivating integrity. Some, uh, some school person, I don't know if it was a boy or girl, somebody in America recently sent me an email asking, saying that for their course at school they had to interview ten people. There's a religious studies course. They had to interview ten people about uh, what is your personal view of morality, what is your personal view of dignity, and how do you cultivate it in your daily life. And normally these letters we get from school kids, as much as I you know, think it's great for school kids to study this stuff, I haven't got time to be answering all these emails, so quite frankly most of them just get ignored. 
But this one, I thought, all oh, these questions are, these are a little bit deeper than a lot of the questions, like why do you shave your head and, you know, why do you wear that color? And so uh, I replied, and uh, I replied to the first question. What is your personal view of morality? So my response was, morality is training yourself, very simple, training yourself to not act on the impulse to cause harm to any living being, self or other. What is your personal understanding of dignity? So I reply and say, dignity is the direct consequence of living a life of morality. And dignity is this. Is, this is what comes when we practice morality, when we practice sila, we exercise the tendency, inhibit the impulse to cause harm. What happens is we get the sense of, I mean, dignity is, a, again, it's another one of those words that's not very popular these days, it's, uh, or it's not well understood, it's misunderstood. Um, self-respect might be a better word that when we've got self-respect, it's like a container, we can trust ourselves. It's just the same as if you respect somebody else, you respect somebody, you trust them. There's a wonderful energy there. When you trust somebody, there's a tremendous strength and support there. You can go to somebody if you trust them totally, and, and that's a wonderful friend to have. Well, likewise, if we live a life of morality, of sila, there's a strength in that, the strength of self-trust, that we know we can trust ourselves. We can be tempted by all sorts of things. Tempted to get angry, tempted to hurt, tempted to steal, yeah. tempted to follow desire, heedless, unskillful ways. And yet, if we have developed sila, if we've got sila paramita, well, there's something within us that protects us. And so uh, all of these ten paramitas are things that we can develop in daily life. Patience, renunciation, choosing, like, choosing to give things up, not because it's a moral question, but because the ability to let go. Ultimately, in, in our spiritual practice, what we're talking about letting go of is me. You know, this meanness, this, this experience of contracted being, experience of a contracted awareness that feels so solid and, and sometimes so great and so amazing, but, but so here and just so just sitting there waiting to suffer, which is what me is. Yeah. Ultimately, this is what we're looking to let go of, but it's not easy to let go of it. And so how do we prepare ourselves? Well, we prepare ourselves with all the ten paramitas, but in particular, one of the most important is this uh, renunciation, nekama paramita, that we choose to let go of things that we like or want, not, it's not immoral, not because things are immoral. You know, people think make a, uh, renunciation into a moral issue. Renunciation is not a moral issue. It's a different faculty. It's a different strength altogether. When we know that we can walk into the supermarket and go straight to the shelf we want, get the one thing we want and walk out again and get nothing else, there's a certain strength in that. Because, you know, the shelves are lined with all this stuff and there's things blaring at you and you can get your free credit and there's music playing and, and they've got these synthetic fragrances blasting your, your nose and you know, every sense organ is being overstimulated so that you get seduced into buying all this rubbish and then exploiting the third world to get it and throwing the planet out of balance even more. And, uh, of course, you know, that's what's supposed to be happening. Um, according to the people who own the supermarkets. But, uh, and, you know, you can easily go in and, and uh, spend more money than you really want to. However, the ability to know what you want, go in, 
get it and get out. There's a strength in that. There's a good feeling about that. Or to be able to face somebody who you really, really detest. Somebody who you basically absolutely detest. You think they've really done you wrong and, and what they need is just to be seriously thumped. And uh, that's what your feeling tells you. And yet you've trained yourself with the sila, with integrity, practice renunciation, you know, giving up, letting go of, of the tendency to follow the impulse to do what you want to do. And these, uh, so these, these are things that we can train in, whatever our situation. Now the question does arise, as I referred to in the beginning, what is it that makes these virtues go bad? Or you know, what, is, what is it that spoils them? And then again, it's the self. It's me where it's, you know, I'm developing dana barometer. I'm developing sila barometer. I'm much more moral than these people. You can have this as a monk. You know, we happen to be fortunate enough to have received training from um, our great teacher, Ajahn Chah, who understood the, the value of the, the vinaya and, and guided us very skillfully and very ably into keeping the moral precepts in a, in a very uh, unneurotic way. But that's fairly rare, actually. And uh, you travel around the Buddhist world and you can see monks getting up to all sorts of things. And, and then sometimes you find quite easy this conceit of looking down on others who don't keep precepts as, as well as you do. Well, people who are not as uh, honest as you are, maybe you see somebody who's, who's telling a lie or somebody who's not as patient as you are or, or these other virtues. Well, the thing is... I wouldn't suggest, I wouldn't say that because we can pollute these virtues with conceit that that's a reason for not developing them. Rather, I would say that we develop them, but we also have our attention so well trained here and now, judgment-free body-mind, so that we're able to feel where this practice we're doing is going off. So we, we cultivate the ten parameters, but... We're also agile enough in our attention to, we're not just fixated on becoming more patient or becoming more equanimous. You know, you can fix, fixate on upeka. I've seen people who fixate, fixate on upeka, perfectly equanimous. Well, equanimity is a wonderful virtue, but also, you know, loving kindness, the Buddha praised loving kindness and compassion and also virya, energy. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, so, uh, these, these, these underlying principles need to be cultivated and at the same time this agility of attention. So this little formula that uh, Master Hua came up with, according with conditions without compromising principles, I think is a very good way of defining our practice. And if we have that, well then, whatever situation we're in, yes, we can develop agility if that's what's called for, but we're not going to compromise the underlying principles of Dhamma. So I hope these uh, thoughts are helpful for you in your daily life practice, and thank you very much for your attention.